Hello and welcome to the PK Soccer Youth Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Kelshaw. In today's episode, I am joined by Gerard Jones. Gerard holds a UEFA A license with the English FA and B license with the United States Soccer Federation. Gerard also holds a master's in performance coaching and has coached in educational roles in Africa, Europe and North America. In today's episode, we talk about Gerard's transition from player to coach and his various coaching educational leadership roles in Africa, Europe and North America. We also learn more about his new online sports education platform, Learnbly. Hi Gerard, thank you for joining us today. Just give me a brief introduction of how you first got involved in coaching. Yeah, thanks for having me and uh, obviously I, I started coaching really young. I, w- I was always interested in coaching and um, I, I started coaching when I was at Halifax Town in what was then the Centre of Excellence. So I was a youth team player, uh, but on an evening when, you, when you're not training, I'd go down to the Centre of Excellence, work with the under-12s, with the under-15s, with the under-16s. And that was as a you know, 16, 17, 18-year-old. And even before that, I used to do some stuff in the community at 14, 15 and you know, it just evolved from there, from going from doing grassroots work, you know, being a youth team player at Halifax Town and, and helping out with the CV to then going to university and, and setting up my own business and running development centres and coaching at academy level, coaching at college level, university, uh, working here, there and everywhere, which we'll get to later. And it just evolved, really. But I, I started from a very young age. And is that what they would have at Halifax would that have been similar to a YTS or was that just on your own back that you would go back in the evenings to, to help out with sessions? Yeah. So it was, it was basically you were, you were a youth team. It was, it was like a YTS as it was, you had your college, you'd be training with the youth team full time every day. Um, and we obviously played against teams like Accrington Stanley actually, and, and, and teams like that. Um, Halifax town at the time were in the conference league. So in the Conference National. And when I signed for them, this is 2006, I think the previous season they got to the playoff final and didn't go up, um, although around the playoffs. The manager at the time when I was there was full enough, Chris Wilder. He was the manager. Okay. Um, so, yeah, and obviously the, I was there within the youth team and, I've you know, great experience because I made a lot of friends there and I've, I've still kept in touch with him to this day. But typically you would you train full-time around your studies there'd be certain days where you know you're in you're in college you're doing stuff you'd have fixtures midweek and and wherever else I'd obviously have games on a weekend and you know you might even have like FA Youth Cup as well you'd be involved in that Um, and then as I said you know there'd be evenings where we would train um, or do extra stuff after college but typically you know most people are done you know like afternoon you nip off or yeah or done so in the morning or whatever um, or they just what you know, so there was a lot of free time per se. So I would typically try and do as much as I could, whether it was at Halifax, whether it was even coaching some of the stuff with Calderdale College, you know, helping out with the different teams or uh, doing after school clubs and, and things like that throughout the area. But yeah, that was one of the main reasons I was asking because it uh, was it forced upon you or was it extra? I mean, it seems you know, just starting to get to know you a little bit better, it was something that you did off your own back just seems that yeah. it's um, after just speaking to you briefly, it's part of your personality that you, you can't stop and you're looking to do that extra and it, any little advantage you could have, you could get in um, further in your career, whether on or off the field. And also I could imagine you're working with um, relatively high level players. And I'm sure you've got a lot of respect as well, being a, a current player, an active player within the club, someone that they could could look up to. So was from there you you've had various different roles within coaching, as you'd briefly just mentioned. But I wanted to talk about your time when you came to the US. So within your timeline of coaching, when was it that you first came to the US to coach? I think I was back and forth to the US for a number of years, probably since sort of, you know, getting involved with Ryasa, which is a private 
collegiate academy in the UK. It's run by Mark Ellis. And he would typically run pro combine events in the US and identify American student athletes, although they could come from anywhere in the world. And they would come to the UK, typically Americans on a tier four visa. And a bit similar where, you know, from our end, you've got Brits and what have you going to the US to play yeah. in college and scholarships. It'd be the other way around. You know, a lot of these lads, rather than playing college soccer, they would choose to, to play at a non-league level. If they had a British passport or a European connection, even better, because then they could play within some of the professional clubs like Bradford City or some of the clubs in Europe that we were connected to. And, uh, and obviously play against high-level teams in showcase games and they'd play full-time. So I was involved with them since 2013. And then as part of that role, that would see me every now and then fly to the US. So we did a, a pro combine event at IMG Academy one year where we were identifying players that were either all American or all state, typically, you know, division one college players, division two. And that was obviously an experience. And then the first real time I went out there full time where it was, I was offered a role as a director of coaching at a club level was with Eastside in Michigan. So that was 2016. And then I flew back. I went to Bristol Rovers uh, because of visa issues. I would have stayed longer. You know, it, it's typical in the US. Donald Trump had just come into power and there's a couple of things going on. And unfortunately, I was in the wrong queue at the wrong time. You know, if it had been another immigration advisor, it, it would have definitely gone differently. But I had a bit of bad luck. I'd gone to London. My visa got uh, delayed. It didn't get denied, but it got delayed. So I was going for a longer term visa. I originally flew out on a H2B and I was going for an O1A. And anyway, the club were fantastic with me. I, you know, I feel so bad for Eastside because they offered me a five-year contract. They, 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 they were paying for everything and loved my time there. And then obviously flew back. You know, it was what it was. Went to Bristol Rovers as head of academy coaching in the professional game in England. And then we found out we were pregnant. And then I flew back to America again in 2018 as a as a director of coaching in New York and I've so been, if we go you know, back to you to that um you're in Michigan yeah and you were so as a complete really as a complete newbie you, you've gone to an established club as yeah. like a director of coaching what was that experience like as far as trying to get your uh, philosophy or terminology or your expertise across to when they when you're completely brand new to them do you know what an incredible experience because um you come across and i would say this to any anybody listening you know from the uk anywhere you are naive because you know what football what soccer looks like in the uk and the way that they do things is completely different in the us you know even getting your head around tryouts you know, I'd never seen, I'd run hundreds and hundreds of events where we're doing talent identification, where we're, we're, we're inviting players in to train with the squad, whether we're doing trials, whatever it may be, at academy level or development centre, but it's not the same. Tryouts is completely different. And as you and I both know, it's different in every state. So when I first came to Eastside, I joined in the spring, just before the spring, and it was a bit of an interesting uh, culture at the time because they wanted someone to come in to implement a philosophy who had a very clear way of doing things and a methodology to improve the coaching standards whilst also mentoring the staff and, and doing the role of the DOC. But right coming up in the summer was, was the immediate term was uh, tryouts and getting ready for that in June. Alongside that, obviously, transitioning in the spring with new teams and, you know, budgets yeah. and new programmes, and then also getting your head around staffing issues. Um, and one of the, the biggest pieces was the club had applied for this thing, Director's Academy status, for a number of years, and every year they got rejected. So one of my first tasks was making sure that we had a, a clear document and we applied for Director's Academy status and we got it, which we did straight off the bat first time. So coming into the role, there was a lot of things that I did where basically I had a very clear identity. And for me, I was incredibly lucky because I don't know if there's many people that would go to the US. You know, you're out of your comfort zone. You may have had director of coaching type roles in the past or similar experiences, 
but to be a DOC of a club where you've got a recreation department, you've got travel, you've got development, you've got this, you've got that, you've got you're working with thousands of players, you you, you know, it's, and they're not even one of the biggest clubs, by the way, you know. So there's bigger clubs. You're getting your head around that the competition piece. You're getting your head around state championships. And for me, I'd come from an environment where, and, I, and I'm still, this is still core to me now, my philosophy around developing the individual and seeing the individual as a project. And that was something I introduced very early on around practice design, the types of methodology that we'd use, you know, how sessions, how I want them to look, how I think they should look, what a good session is for developing decision-making, for developing the individual, how we're lasering certain individuals within the practice to stretch and challenge them. And that was alien because although that might sound great, you know, for them and for parents, it was all about, yeah, but how many state championships have you won? And where's the team in the league? And if they're top of the league, great. We'll take our kids from this neighbourhood team and they'll pop over. Or actually, you know, and that leads me on to it was parents. You know, parents is a completely different animal in the US to anywhere else I've worked in the world. And because it's pay to play and it's competitive and some of these people, certainly in Eastside, there's a lot of type A personalities, a lot of CEOs, a lot of really, you know, high, high maintenance people. Um, they're challenging as well because you're managing their expectations. They've got an opinion. They're like, listen, Paul, we want you to do this like this. You know, he didn't do it. The previous coach did it like this. So, so you've got all the politics going on whilst getting your head around that there's a parent volunteer board. And by the way, you've got to lobby some of these guys because some of these guys might have kids on your team or not as the case may be. And you've got to get your head around team managers and parent managers and, and they're coaching from the sideline. And looking back, I honestly, without blowing the trumpet, I think I did a really good job in terms of, there was a lot of quick wins that I did, whether it was by accident or by design. A lot of it will have been by design, but some will have been by accident for sure where in terms of managing the parents and engaging with the parents and stopping, you know, the crazy shouting instructions at the kid and constantly reminding them, having parent meetings, because I was constantly at every practice and every session, people got to see me more and I would pull people and I would, I would be, because I had a character and a bit of presence about me, I was confident I could have those conversations with, with parents and try and get them on side. But I got a lot wrong for sure, you know, in terms of managing people at a time. And and but you just it's um it's something that you got to do, you know, with time, like with the philosophy piece to answer your question. I wrote a document, it was a booklet like this. I remember hand delivering it to the state association when we we're going for the DA status and we got it. And I did a, one of the first things I did with the coaches was a, a workshop. And I basically said, these are the non-negotiables for me. From my experience, these are the things that are really important to me that I, we need to see because this is what works. But I'm really keen on knowing what do you think? How Because you want to go on a journey with people. So there was some stuff in there that's, look, we don't want to, we, we don't want to see long lines. We don't want to see lectures. We don't want to see shouting from the sidelines, pigeonholing kids in positions, you know, loads of other stuff. But then the detail and, and the real micro details, I'd be quite specific on those and what those look like. But then in order to bring people with me and then bring me with them as well, which is important, and get buy-in locally, uh, I was really big on what does good look like? What are some of the stuff that you're doing right now? What does it, what does it look like? Why is that important for your team? Where, what are the individual needs of your team, Chris? Right, how is that different to John's? John's working with the B team and they're in this division. Some of the challenges are this. And even that, like, I didn't like those terminologies, A, B. So, again, we changed to colours. And I know you're not really – you're moving the goalposts, you're just rephrasing it, you're not – but, again, it's the education around why is it white, why is it purple, why is it green, why is it black, why is it – so, for us, it was based around uh, the division. So, the categorization of where the players are at to get the best out of their individual needs – and they're in the best competition level for their talent and their potential. And then we were we would obviously design stuff around that and everything was around learning. You know, are we designing uh, real good learning experiences? So one phrase I introduced that was part of our coaching philosophy was 
repositioning the role of the coach as a learning designer. And that was back in 2016 where I was saying, your role is a learning designer. That's your role. Forget the winning, forget anything else. Because if we get that right and we're really focused and being passionate, passionate, obsessed about getting the learning right, the rest will be good. The rest will take care of itself, believe me. And what I started to find was just different ways of how to motivate people. And again, like motivating them with the with competition, you know, motivating them with teams. Some people were motivated by the more teams that could coach, the more money they earn. Okay, great. Then are you the right person for that? And we just introduced the culture. And then, you know, being brutally honest with you, with, with Eastside, as I said, I got a lot right. There will have been a lot wrong. Totally naive because you're going into it <laughs> with no awareness. You have to learn quick. And the best thing I did was the first tryouts, I didn't impose too much. I observed the first, just to see, right, what, what happens here? What is it going on? That wasn't to say that I didn't step in or didn't make judgment calls or say, actually, he needs to be on that team or whatever. But I was pretty much, let's just let the club run it how they've always run it. And then the next tryouts, I can introduce my own ideas. And if I need to, and I think that was quite good. And I was really fortunate that, you know, the ones that I didn't like um, where I was different in New York, if I didn't like people, that wasn't important for me. It was more, are the kids coming, do the kids want to play for that coach? You know, are they, are they coming with a smile? And if they are, I don't have to like the guy. Let's just get him on board. Whereas the east side, it was very much, I don't like him and they're not doing what I want. I'll get somebody else in that does what I want. And I pretty much changed a lot of people and brought people in. And I was really lucky that the, the board of directors backed me. You know, I had a president who didn't interfere, but would give me honest feedback where he, if he, cause he'd have a, a sense for what parents were, were feeling. And I had an unbelievable support from the board. Whereas not many people can come abroad and come into clubs. I've been lucky the last two DOC roles I've had, I've had full control, a bit like a, a Sir Alex Ferguson to, to, to paint the point where realistically, and, and that, a lot of that's because of the relationship I have with the board, because I'm engaged with the board. I know what parent managers are on my team. I'm not daft either. I know that actually I might encourage this guy to be on the board because he's, he's one in my bank. I would always evaluate before going into any meeting, how many yeses and nos have I got? And, and hopefully that answers your question. That's how I managed to introduce a lot because I wasn't ever introducing anything to the coaches that didn't effectively, indirectly or directly, have the okay from the president or the board. But that didn't mean to say that I had to run to them for a yes every time because I didn't. I literally had full control where, you know, it was Gerard's castle, do what you want. But because I was quite clever in how I navigated that, that thing, and a, and a lot of it was by accident, I, I think I was genuinely shooting from the hip and, learning as I was going, but I had people with me. So if there was yeah. ever resistance, they can't say no either because I'm, they're not going to go and complain to a parent manager who happens to be good friends with the vice president who happens, you know, and, and then they're, they're complaining about you behind your back and you've already got people killing you. I would, I would already know whispers before they happened, you know, a bit like you have spies everywhere. You'd have, it, it was a very, and again, you're not prepared for that. You're not, pre and the beautiful thing, mate, was, um, you know, where else can a young 20 odd year old go and run a program, be responsible for budgets? You know, our facility budget was over half a million. You know, that's a lot of money. Generating revenues, you know, we generated revenues in that year in excess of over. We increased revenues in excess of over $750,000, you know, and I've been DOC of programs where we generated 2.5 to $5 million in revenues, which isn't mega money compared to other clubs, but still, you know, it's a decent amount. Where else is a 20 odd year old going to be responsible for managing budgets and, you know, hiring, firing. And oh, so it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. But that's why I wanted to, I'm glad I mentioned it or talked about it now because it is, um, you can sometimes, um, and I put myself in this boat. You get a, you get put in this position, basically because somebody saw you on a field running a session, yeah. and then you're given all this responsibility. 
and it is a lot of um, thinking on your feet and and it is vitally important that you do have the the backing of the board i know with yeah. my own club i've been um fortunate enough that when the president that hired me stepped down retired that the uh, the new president was fully supportive and it was on board and we can we can joke about um being alex ferguson or how we uh or sir how we would run a run a club but it is it is somewhat of a unique experience being um that director of coaching and really just for anyone listening especially in in the uk just trying to get an idea of an understanding of the size of the clubs and yeah the pay-to-play can get a a bad a bad rap but then you look at the um Obviously, I'm generalizing here, but the the roles that the parents have, like as far as their um, their jobs, they they can be like you said, big time CEOs of multi million dollar companies. They can be millionaires. Um, they can be physicians yeah. or lawyers, and and you're responsible for looking after their their most important thing in their life, their children and yeah. making them, it, it's such a, um, trying to put it into words, it, it is um, a huge responsibility and one that you're going to make mistakes, but if you can learn from them and, and like, like I said, I can't, I can't say it enough, the support of the support of the president or the club president, you, you, we joke, you can joke in England, like, Oh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the dreaded vote of confidence from the board, but it's yeah. uh, it is it's a hugely vital thing. And also, what people may not understand is you're somewhat your boss is a vol is a volunteer, or you are working for with volunteers, and it's yeah. trying to keep people on board, trying to create that the time for those workshops and those coaches and parent meetings, it's uh, it can be difficult, but it's, if you don't have them, it just, it kicks the can down the road and it causes a bigger a snowball effect really of a bigger problem further down the road. So then I know you'd mentioned that you'd had to leave for, for visa issues and you'd spent some time in Academy football or back in Academy football in England but then you got that opportunity to go back into New York. Was that around 2018, 19? Yeah, 2018, yeah. So how did that role come about, To you know, your opportunity to come back to the States? Yeah, so, well, both really. I managed myself. I've always really tried to take control of my own destiny. And it's funny that you made a point there before about normally you might find the best coach is someone that's given the role of the DOC, but not, and they might have seen you on the pitch and you might be the strongest one in the club and then all of a sudden you gravitate. But, you know, what I would say to that before answering you, your last question was the best coach should always make the best DOC. You know, and, and the, I think the role of the DOC, although it's different in every club for different reasons, I would typically say that you've got to try and have a handle on at least four things, or at least that's how I've done it, which is player development, coach development, parent development, and club development. Because you've got to obviously want to grow the club. I would, I would say this at every tryout, every, every coach, when I first said it, used to look at me like I was an alien. Like, what's he mean? Or they'd be like, it would knock them. And I would always say, before every tryout, we're unemployed. Every one of us in the club, including myself, we're unemployed. You know, because I would try and get the point over to them that, there's not one kid registered in the club before the start of the season. So because it's competitive and it's, and then, and you know yourself, they're going to try out over there. They're trying out you in the afternoon. They're doing whatever. And parents are managing that. You've, you've got to have your, you've got to have your A game, you know, recruitment's different. So, um, so I've always been quite good at really being a strong leader, but taking control of destiny, you know, and try, try and control what I can control. And that's how I got the role in the first place in Eastside and then in New York. 
was east side. I was talking to a couple of people in the States already who connected people with clubs and they sorted out the visa. And um, there was a role that I could have gone to in California. And at the time, I passed my A license. And the, I did not want to come to America without passing my A. Because I felt if I go to America as UA for B, it would be very difficult for me to come back and then try and finish off my coaching courses and what have you. And plus, if by going as an A license, you got more stock and potentially earn more money and stuff like that. So I made sure that, and it was the same with East, uh, with John Jay in New York. I literally called a couple of people in the US. I had an interview in California for a role linked with LA Galaxy. Didn't work out. Uh, salary wasn't good enough and weren't paying for medical. They weren't, it, was a, it was a disaster. And I spoke to people at UK Elite, yeah. um, which is now obviously still soccer. And in particular, Andy Bo Andrew Bo Broadbent. And I was fortunate enough that they basically said to me, where do you want to go? You know, there's this project going on in New York. Might be of interest here, but it really depends on you. We've also got roles that you could potentially come out in Texas or wherever. And I went for New York because it was a blank canvas. I just felt that I could, I could mould it how I wanted to do it. Um, it had growth potential. It was also somewhere where they hadn't been successful before per se. And from a selfish perspective, I knew that there were certain people in that area. Um, and we spoke about, you know, Tim Bradbury before we started recording, where I thought, you know what, I can probably stretch and challenge myself further. I, can, I want to get involved in US soccer. I want to deliver courses for US soccer and things like that. So New York's probably a good place for me to be and bump into Tim, learn off Tim, connect with Tim, grow you. And that was how I did it. And I spoke to Andy, spoke to an, another couple of individuals who were part of that decision-making process. And there was me and another guy who's still out there now called Ian Hughes. And uh, basically my visa was almost like a test for his. And I got my O1A and then he got his O1A and he went to Texas. He's now a senior, very senior level within the company. And yeah, I got connected with John Jay. And I, again, it's interesting because when I went to Eastside, they brought me in because they wanted someone to, as I said before, introduce a curriculum, bring standards, blah, blah, blah. But they already had a technical director. Okay. And it was very awkward politically because he wasn't really involved in the decision-making of me coming in. Found out at the last minute, so it's a bit of a threat. And I'd obviously gone above him. And now I'm line managing him and his role completely changed overnight. So that was awkward managing those dynamics. And in New York, it was similar but different because there was already a DOC, but he wanted to leave. And there wasn't a curriculum, there wasn't a methodology in place, there wasn't anything. And it was a blank canvas and you could grow how you want. So I, I was able to go, right, I want to go there. And I initially went in as the director of coaching and player development or technical director of coaching, whatever title it was, slightly different to his. But everyone, even the parents knew I was basically the DOC. And then okay. when he left immediately in the spring season, then it was like, Gerard's now the new DOC, you know, and but I was already in it in an official and working with those. But yeah, I, I took control of it. You know, I literally made the call and, and got the visa and, and the, the rest is history. So then the coaches... Um working with you were UK elite coaches? A mix. Same in John uh, Eastside. Eastside, we used to work with a company called Yes Soccer. So we would have your visa staff, but then we'd have what your local staff, if you like, who were obviously Americans, national. And um, it was the same in John Jay. We would have, and I actually transitioned the other way, which probably didn't go down well with Steel Soccer, but I was quite keen on, for me, it was so important that we're invested in the community. And the, the danger for us, even though it's commercial for whoever who's paying your wage, I guess, but for us, you know, we can come and go. There's no loyalty to a parent who's paying. You know, your visa can get denied. Your visa can get renewed. It can, you might decide you want to go somewhere sunny. It can change. So parents are a little bit like, oh, here we go. Here's the 10th coach we've had this, you know. Yeah. They get frustrated with that, as you know. So for me, I actually went the other way. We had visa staff, and certainly reading the signs of what was going on with immigration in the US, but we actually transitioned to more developing parents, training them up. Obviously, I was an instructor, so I was mentoring them and giving 
developing them on the licenses as well, getting them the D and stuff like that. And we actually hired more domestic coaches because at least then we've got roots in the club, people who know the community. We've got a connection to the club, which is good because the parents know them. You can mentor them and guide them the way you want to work. But equally, when you go, there's a lasting fingerprint and that, that can evolve. And that was really important rather than just new people coming in all the time and it's constantly changing. You know, it's, it's important to keep some continuity. Well, then it goes back to what you'd mentioned about, you know, a balance between player, coach, parent and club development. You can't just concentrate on one thing. So I know, and we talked before, um, I worked for Tim as a Lewisborough coach or what was Lewisborough. And again, you were there for one season. And then the guy before you had been there a couple of seasons. Then, yeah. So even though they had had quality coaching, and that's why companies like Noga, UK Elite, and such forth, Challenger, Yes Soccer, that's how they're getting put into these clubs. But like you said, a high turnover of staff um, is one of the main reasons why the director of coaching role has become so popular in the US because they've someone that can, and it's why I got my own, my own role with Hewlett Lawrence because they wanted some stability and structure and someone that could be the face of the club in a way that is, so there can be some consistency uh, and the club can, yeah. and like you said, helping with the community as well, which is something when um, it is, is so important because these clubs have been, been around for 40, 50 years in some instances. Yeah. So it's uh you know, um, you know, it's really got to, you know, help support that community is, it's such a, a vital thing. And one of, uh, you'd mentioned it while we were just talking then briefly about helping people get on their D license and grassroots licenses. And then one of the main reasons if you wanted to come to the Westchester County, County area of New York was to, to really also become a better coach educator you talk yeah. a bit a bit then how then you came to the u.s then as a uefa a licensed coach and then you um on the u.s soccer federation coaching ladder did you start did you go straight into a b license or did you have to uh work your way all the way up the ladder no i did the b um i went to, i it's strange because it's all a little bit of a political game. It's the same with UEFA. You know, people who've got the USSF A license wouldn't be able to go on to a UEFA A. It's a bit bonkers, really, but it's all a bit of one-upmanship. So with UEFA A, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, and most people in the world would say this, UEFA A trumps every. It's UEFA, it's UEFA A. But with US soccer, um, you can go to A license or pro. As a UEFA, I had to go to the USSFB, which was actually fine for me because, again, I think it's important for people listening. You've, you're going into a different culture, you know, so it's really important to understand how, what are their vision on, what is their vision on developing young players? What does the American player look like and the future American player look like? What's their game system? And obviously they're heavily influenced by the Dutch and the Belgians and they've had it all really over the years, US soccer, but... Um, I did the B and I loved it because very, very similar to like KNBB type awards where you're managing the opposition, creating a problem for them you to solve, which was their OLI. Um, but again, it gave me a better framework for understanding the, the culture piece in America. And I loved it. And then from there, I ended up getting invited onto the USSF uh, grassroots instructors license, which was like the inaugural course, if you like. Yeah, uh, where they were training hundreds of instructors that were handpicked in the in the US as part of their national strategy to develop X number of uh, hundreds of thousands of coaches and obviously impact millions of players. And that was around play, practice, play. And it, again, it was beautiful for me because my whole career, my life and my research has been about principle-based approach, play-centred, you know, game-based learning, setting challenges, using questions. So I think one of the added advantages I had as well in that was most coaches, when they come through US soccer or whoever you do your education with, 
they might not buy in per se to everything that's been taught to them. And they might go, I'll, say, I'll nod and say yes to this, but when I get my license, it's, you know, they may say that. And I was fortunate that with me, I'm living and breathing it anyway. And I was actually doing this stuff in my club environment. I was doing it in, in Rochdale at academy level. I was doing it at higher levels, you know. So when I was delivering the courses or even as a DOC, I was getting asked questions that maybe other instructors wouldn't have a clue, they wouldn't have the answer to because they hadn't had enough experience or they, they maybe don't believe in it enough for themselves. And I had enough in me, in my locker that I could say, well, actually, you know, try this or, well, that's a great point here, but what about this? And, and I loved it. And for me, it was a great way to become a better coach. You know, what a fantastic way to improve your own efficiency. And is that, um, I suppose, was that really one of the first times you really, I know you'd mentioned it, um, that you'd done it previously in, in Rochdale, but you wanted to then now become a coach educator as well. Was that something that you thought that you really wanted to do? No, I, I actually, well, I didn't, I didn't coach educator Rosh. I was just a coach, but uh, Bristol Rovers, I was head of academy coaching, which was a coach developer role. Um, and I ended up doing stuff at Bristol Rovers as a coach developer for the Football Association of Wales. And I delivered on their C certificate. And again, and all these roles, I never grad, I never wrote on a board, you know, I want to be a DOC. I want to be yeah, a yeah. educator. I want to be, I just ended up gravitating into them um by by accident or by you know coincidence um but i really enjoyed it you know i definitely wasn't great at it when i started but when i went to the faw um i got a lot stronger and then again when i went to us soccer i mean i just went into overdrive and then obviously in my role i was a lot stronger going back to the us in 2018 I had more experiences probably helped having two kids to be honest having one son and then having a second one on the way, that changes your things. And, and yeah, just absolutely loved it. But I, I, I didn't aspire to be it. I, I ended up gravitating into the role. Um, what were the type of coaches that were attending the, the courses that you were instructing? Were they, were they parent volunteers? Were they, were they young, uh, young players that were looking to follow a similar pathway to yourself? kind of people were you seeing on the course a mix of everything an absolute mix of everything i think we've definitely seen a transition more towards paid professional coaches and and even if they're doing it part-time they're, they're paid rather than volunteer but there were coaches on there who were volunteers there were coaches that wanted to do coaching and aspired to do coaching some that were doing it probably because they were told they needed to have the license and if they didn't they're not on it yeah, those who have been coaching for years, you know, they've done the old NSCAA, now United Soccer Coaches. Yeah. They felt like they know what they're doing. They've had maybe bad experiences with US soccer from years, years gone past, and they don't like the way it's done. Um, and, you know, I'd come up against some coaches with unbelievable egos. And bearing in mind, I've worked in Morocco at an elite level, working with people who have played in the Premier League, people who, you know, Osh is now system manager to Patrick Vieira at Crystal Palace, and he was my boss. Headhunted me, he was the national technical director. He's worked with Gareth Bale with the Welsh national team, gone to the Euros, you know. Yeah. But that type of ilk, you, you're working with, um, God, Nabet, you know, Zaki, all these legends that are legends around the world. Their, and their egos, you know, some of these lads have, like uh, some of the guys I worked with in Morocco, for example, they, they were managers of the national team. You know, they all managed that. Like, it'd be like working with uh, Roy Hodgson or someone like that, Gareth Southgate. Or, but, but yeah, I was meeting guys at grassroots levels. Some of them worked at academy level or were trying to get into the DA or whatever. But unbelievable egos. And they got, you know, they've not done anything. Or yeah. you'd have some who'd maybe done, their teams may have won. I'd word it like that. Not they, they didn't win anything. The kids scored the goal. They won, their teams won a state championship or whatever. But they think like, oh, we've gone to nationals or whatever. And we're this amazing coach. So what can you teach me? And I used to love that because straight away, obviously you've got a, a barrier there. So you've got to break that down. But equally, it was, it was incredible fun for me going on a journey with those coaches especially when they've come through 
a methodology where one guy actually said to me on the course right at the start, me and uh, Malcolm Brown, I don't know if you know Malcolm, but Malcolm in New York and great instructor, he, he, we were instructing this D-license course together. And he said to us at the start of the course, listen, I don't know what I'm going to learn here. I don't know what you can teach me because quite honestly, I'm obviously know what I'm doing because my team are top of the league. We're qualified for this national, we've done this, we've done that. You know, and what I'm doing is working. So why, why, why would I try this method? And that was, now this same guy right at the end of the course couldn't be more in love with play, practice, play. He was the biggest champion of play, practice, play. And, and just in general, more, he will have still done his, his same stuff for sure. There'll yeah. be certain things, you can't fully change him, but he was completely different. I actually watched him and he didn't realise I was there. Not like stood in the bushes, but I was away. Didn't even know I was there. And I'm watching him on a, on a sideline, coaching a normal game. And he was behaved completely different to when I watched him before. Before he'd be up and down the sideline, screaming at players. Players aren't doing what he wants. He'd yank them off. Kids would be sat on the bench, but they'd get not even get on. Or if they get on, they've got a couple of minutes. But he's more bothered about the, the result. That was the type of stuff you're dealing with, though. So you've got everyone on that journey. And for me, you know, I said it's enjoyable if you can convince them and change them which, you know, in those instances I did. But I think it's so important when you're a coach developer or even as a DOC or anywhere, when you're working with people, you've got to understand what motivates them and why they're here. And once you've got your head around that, it'll sort of allow you to know what bus stop am I picking him up at? You know, for some people, I was picking him up at that bus stop. So I know, right, this is where he's at and that's the journey he wants to go down. And there's some of the roads he's going to go. And I might have to change the direction a little bit to get him over here. Whereas this person's, I'm picking him up at this bus stop and they're way back over here or somebody else is further along. And do you know what? I'm going to pick these up at this bus stop and we'll get to him later on and we'll come to him. And you've got to juggle, you've got to juggle all that. And, you know, they're the bits that I love. And again, coming back to coaching, club development, all that type of stuff, it's great experience because effectively you've got to have great relationship skills excuse me you've, you've got to you know be able to build rapport with people and, and know how to talk to a human you know it comes back to the human piece doesn't it the, the empathy and and also you know having a bit of credibility behind what you do a bit of substance because obviously where he may have had bad experiences in the past you know they're, they're not the same anymore and it's getting better but equally he might have seen stuff that's worked for him. So he is challenging you and he's saying to you, do you even believe what you believe in? And if you can show to people that, listen, like the, what I believe in works and they can see you actually living and breathing it and you've got answers to questions and you're going on a journey with them, I think you're just going to get more success. There's a lot more credibility there, you know? Yeah, it's definitely about... Um... I've probably been there myself. You have a bit of an identity crisis, trying to give give yourself an identity as a as a coach or as a club, or uh, one identity the player has. It's definitely a, a huge a huge part of it. And then from that, um, and we talked briefly about this off air that kind of a re reoccurring theme with the podcast that I've interviewed coaches that have travelled and furthered their education in. And so from, from your second stint in the US, you, you now made um, the journey to, to North Africa, to Morocco. Could yeah. you talk about how, because I remember um, I had followed you or I'd seen you on social media. And the next thing I see is, um, is an interview in French, which blew me away. Um, <laughs> so I'm just... And I'm sure the listeners are as well, just very curious about what your role was in Morocco, how that opportunity came about. I was really lucky that it probably came out for a number of different things. Obviously, I, I had some small connection to the FAW. Uh, and, you know, I knew people like Ian, uh, who's obviously a fantastic guy, Ian Hughes, and um, obviously... A, a, He's worked with Oshan Roberts and he, there's that connection there. 
Um, and I was looking at, I got a call from a guy called Neil, who was used to be obviously the, the, the CEO at the time of the Welsh Trust. And he, he rang me, they were in the US, they were at the convention. And I was in Connecticut. And he was literally saying to, you know, are you, are you, was it in Philly that year? Or New Jersey, where was it? But wherever. It was local near where we were. It wasn't a million miles away. And uh, obviously fancied meeting up for a coffee type of thing, have a chat. Um, I actually wasn't able to meet him there. We ended up chatting over the phone via WhatsApp video, I think we did it. And we ended up chatting and he told me, you know, about an interest. Osh was really interested in my CV, coach education, background coaching, thinks I'd be really suited to this. What do I think? Would I be open to it? You know, what are my experiences of, of uh, working in other countries? And obviously I've got a bit of those and the language piece and all that type of stuff. And uh, yeah, and then obviously I had a few follow-up conversations with Oshan himself, which was amazing because, you know, I followed Osh, I followed his career. What an unbelievable career he's had developing the Welsh game, going on work at the top level. And obviously now he's he's in the Premier League, and you know I'm talking to this guy for a role in in Morocco. So it was great, and I was just incredibly lucky, you know. And I got the role as an elite coach educator. So my role primarily was developing and mentoring and training coaches. Of course, as part of the role, and like most things, you get involved in other things. So every now and then, you know, on an evening, I'd be taking sessions, whether it's, you know, with the under-17 lady women's team, national team, under-20s or whatever, or going over and doing something with Sergio and um, having conversations with him and doing stuff where you're taking on board things around individualised learning and training plans, implementing it. I was heavily involved in, you know, creating a lot of the resources, well, all the resources for coach education, playing philosophies, things like that working with Oshan on those, of course, and the team of elite coach educators that we were, there was three of us. So we're all obviously working together on the projects and just incredible. You know, I got to mentor and train youth national team coaches. So in the summer, me, Oshan and another guy, we would go around and we would be delivering presentations to these national team coaches on what's our philosophy, what's our playing philosophy, how do we want our Moroccan national teams to play, you know, what's our DNA type of stuff. Yeah. Uh, showing them clips from, you know, top level or from Morocco that we could that reinforce or represent our principles and our values. And then obviously I delivered and assisted on different courses, assisted with the pro license. I delivered on the A license, theoretically, practically, created all the content, you know, create presentations for courses and and um, I was the course director for the Youth Award and delivered that. And, you know, I was involved in the technical director's license and you name it. Honestly, it was, it was incredible to, to go into games and do an analysis. You know, sometimes Osh would send me an email. You'd have an order de mission and you'd have to go and, you know, watch a game. You might have, like, I remember going to one game. Well, I went to many, but an example, Cameroon or, you know, Republic of Africa, whatever, you know, you're watching all these games um, and then you'd create a report. You try, you know, I'd go to Patola Pro Games, and then the beauty of it is, was because my role was primarily coach development, if you like. I could then use that. So not only have I done a performance analysis type stuff, and I've analysed the opposition and match prep and all that type of thing, or I've done something with one of the coaches. I could also use that content for material, whether it's a video or whatever it is, for the for the A license or the B or the so yeah, it was it was a great role, and the language. I learned the language while I was there, you know. So I end up going from not speaking a word to speaking fluently in French, you know. And, and even from September onwards last year, every well, I, I did everything in French anyway. But in the early days, it was probably a few bits of French and then English, you know. Yeah. But then as I got more confident, and when I and delivering the first A license in September. I did it in French. I got the sign off from the French teacher. I got the sign off from other people. Um, and this was another thing, like we never had, there was a French teacher, but I never had a French teacher, if you like, you know, not none of us really did. There was a woman who used to come in for an hour a day or a couple of days here there. And she would do basic stuff like, you know, how many brothers have you got? Tell people in French, your sisters, your aunt, what's a dog, you know? 
And I was never, ever, ever interested in any of that. And the reason why I probably excelled further, you know, other people might have had French words around, obviously I know the French word for cat and dog, but as an example, they could probably tell me what a dog is in French, but they couldn't string a sentence together. If someone spoke to them in French, they wouldn't have a, a Scooby-Doo. So I, I could literally, I would be more around conversation. I would rehearse presentations. The night before, I would rehearse my presentation in French. I'd practice it in somebody else, in front of somebody else who's Arabic and French speaking. Then they would say, oh, maybe use this phrase. It's better. And, and yeah, it just it evolved. And incredible journey, incredible experience. You're working at an elite level, you know, and, and dealing with a different culture where it's high performing, you're dealing with personalities, you're dealing with a president who's, you know, on the board of FIFA now, he's on the board of CAF, he's high profile individuals, you know, and you're in the media a lot. That was something that surprised me. When I went over, normally if you get a role for the FA, let's say Federation or whatever, you're probably thinking, oh, that should be a safe role, that, you know, it should be working for a national governing body. You shouldn't really be under pressure. And in Morocco, it was, it was almost like work, or was working like a club. It was exactly like working for a club where you're in the media, you're getting criticised or other people are getting criticised. There's this um, environment around you that's pressure and results driven and tasks. Everything's changing. You try and plan things in advance. Things change. People change. You know, facilities change. One minute you're over here, next minute you're over there. Next minute... The president of FIFA's at the complex and nobody knows and it's like president of FIFA's here and you've got to get involved. So you've got to deal with all those moving pieces. And it was a whirlwind to be honest with you, but you know, unbelievable experience. And it just came about through uh through pure chance, really. So from the from there you you moved back to the UK. Was that COVID related or was that for study reasons? No, I was already studying my PhD. I started my PhD before um, before going to Morocco. And obviously going to Morocco made it even better, you know, because you, my PhD is literally investigating how coaches can become more effective and efficient in how they use feedback to guide the attentional search of players, whether you call it scanning, whatever you want to use, the visual search, so players can come up with their own solutions, their own adaptable mood solutions. So it worked hand in hand. Um, but my contract was obviously linked with, with Osh. There's, there's been a, a number of changes within the DTN. Um, and I was fortunate to, you know, I've, I've done, what was it, a year and a half. Okay, I'll get you a dream now. My little boys just walked in. And uh, yeah, you know, and um, yeah, it, it was incredible. And obviously I've moved back to the UK now. And uh I'm in a, in a period where I've started this new business, as you know. I've got an online platform called You Learn that I know we'll, we'll talk about for a bit. And I'm, I'm spending more time with my family. I'm, I'm loving it. I'm trying to identify. I'm, I've spoken to a number of different Premier League clubs for various roles. And I'm just trying to identify the right move because I'm in a really fortunate position, to be honest, you know, both financially and, and uh, probably experience wise that. I can pick the next move and be really careful on where I go next. Um, and COVID, I mean, COVID was tough because I went to Morocco in February. Then March, yeah. COVID happened. And I, I remember I left, I left obviously New York in early Feb. I, if I'd have been six days, seven days, five days in England, it'd have been that at max. I was literally, just, as soon as I got back to England, I was on the next plane to Morocco on my own. I'm trying to get the lay of the land, learn the language, do this, do that, learn Arabic, learn French, all the rest of it. And then COVID happened in March. And then I couldn't get back for visa reason, uh, visa for COVID reasons. And the borders closing and things like that. And it was just a disaster. And I actually missed the birth of my second son. So, which was, it was gutting. Then you come back, then you test positive for COVID and then, and then borders are closed the other way and trying to get back in's a nightmare. And so it was all that, you know, palaver going on. And yeah, it was definitely tough being away from family for so many months. I mean, I basically, even though I managed to get back for a short period in July last year, 
I then had to fly straight back to Morocco because I was under pressure. Then I managed to come back for a, a few days in December, but I had to fly back literally 1st of January, 2nd of January. I was back in Morocco. So you're not really getting an experience, you know. So yeah. I've pretty much gone over a year without seeing my family. Um, my family were in England and I was in Morocco, which wasn't how it was meant to be, but obviously COVID changed things. So um, I think I'm, that's probably a, a, a one reason why now I'm really being patient. And obviously I've come back, I've been back in the summer and, you know, it's interesting you mentioned COVID because I'm enjoying it, being able to see my son. Definitely. Yeah. Family and all that, yeah. Well, it is, um, it is, although um, your story is somewhat unique, there are still a lot of coaches that have sacrificed or made certain choices to, to further their career or get um, more experience in the game. But at the end of the day, there is, the family is, the most important thing and yeah. i'm sure now that you're going to be um you said there that your um your next move is is yours that it just having that somewhat reassurance it can take its toll on you that the um the stress and that could be whether you're um being inspected by fifa or whether it's the volunteer board member that's breathing down your neck. Obviously, certain ones will come with more more stress, but there are still similarities, and the the pressure can get to you at all different levels of the game. So it is. Yeah. Um, but the fact then that you're, you know, in this position where you're you're researching for a PhD, you've got your family around you. You're like like you said, the ball is in your court. So now, and really, um, one of the main reasons that we, we made contact was to learn a little bit more about your, your new adventure and your coach education platform. Can you give us, um, first you just tell us uh, what's the platform called and, and, and why you came up with this idea? Yeah, so my, I've got a huge passion for improving coaches, you know, and players, obviously. And some of that's been in the back of my mind. And obviously I've worked abroad, I've come back, I've done coach education with different governing bodies. It's really hard for coaches to access high-level content that goes beyond the X's and O's. Because a lot of the content that's out there is typically X's and O's, drills, sessions. And there's, there's some great content out there, don't get me wrong. But a lot of coaches, and, and I include myself in this, that I want to know more about certain things. I want to go deeper into the science behind what you do and why and bridge the gap between the academic research and avoid the jargon, but bridge the gap between the research and world-leading best practice. And that's what started Ulearnably. So the platform's called Ulearnably, which was inspired as a name because, you know, I use this phrase, you learn beautifully. And I just came up with you as in you, learnbly. So ulearnbly.com. And on, on the platform, coaches can access online courses, mentoring services, and exclusive insight interviews with experts, not just in football, but across a number of different sports around the world. Even experts, who are, whether it's in skill adaptation or learning or whatever it may be. So, you know, we've got content on there on, on uh, UL Exclusive where we've spoken to Craig Morris, who's the great Britain, uh, British slalom canoeing coach. He went to the Olympics in Tokyo. You know, so there's a lot that people can learn from him. So whether it's Russell, you know, Russell Earnshaw in rugby, working with the RFU, with the England national squads, working with Eddie Jones, working with a number of different clubs. He's a consultant that goes into hockey and football and all this. Um, to people like Christian Wilson, who's a first-team coach at Crystal Palace in the Premier League. So there's a number, loads of different avenues. Uh, and that's what it is. It's a platform where coaches can get more than the X's and O's. And again, you know, the big thing that's driving me is around creating something that can leave a bit of a legacy. Because for me, coach education at the minute isn't individually focused. So they talk about all these buzzwords being reality-based, experiential, 
learning, holistic, blah, blah, blah. But I would say one of my core values is it's individually focused. So the individual is in control of what they're learning and how. They're not going on something and getting chucked content at them and they've got to consolidate it. They're not sat in a a classroom for hours on end from eight o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night, you know, or even on long modules where you're going through modules and there's tick box exercises or quizzes. And, you know, you're always looking to cheat the system and skip the video to get to the end. And you're just doing it for as a tick box. I wanted to create something that effectively goes beyond that. So coaches can get information quick and easy, but when they want, so it's easily accessible and it's affordable because often a lot of the stuff, you know, if you were to do your pro license, you're looking at a minimum 10 or 12,000 pounds, you know, with the FA, it's, it's a lot of money. You know, my A license cost me over 5,000 pounds. That's not including travel and all the rest of it. That was just the course on its own. You know, the amount of money that these coaches are investing in themselves, which is, which is fantastic. But for, for most people, they might not be able to afford that. And even the ones that are and can, even if you're a coach who's working at a high level, they, they still want to get something, you know, so that, that's something that inspired the name and, you know, the concept behind it. So it's not just for football and soccer coaches, you because you, you delve into, you're working with all, it's really for any, any coach, both individual and team sport coaches. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's going to evolve more and more. Now, obviously, a lot of the content on there now is, is from my own experiences, because obviously my background's football, soccer. So it's, it's that team and obviously individual focus, but team invasion sports stuff. But a lot of the principles remain the same. But as I said, you know, we've got people on there from swimming, from canoeing, you know, which are completely different to all kinds of different stuff. And the way it's going to continue to evolve is that it's going to be a platform for all sports, not just football, because for one, not other sports might have the same accessibility that football, rugby, hockey may have, or basketball, or American football. But equally, there's a lot of things that we can learn off rugby, you know, off tennis, off whatever, boxing, you know, that are transferable. There might be a really cool idea that someone could listen to, listen to Craig, who's gone to the Olympics, that you could transfer into a football environment, into a soccer environment, or, or vice versa. So yeah. that's where the sort of ambition came for the, for the platform. And where's so that it's continually evolving, you're going to be continually adding adding content to the to the for, I guess additional courses and content throughout the year. Yeah. We're we're literally adding new videos every week, every month. Um, there's and also at the minute we're currently building an app. So the app will be launched this year, which will be another piece because a big part of learning is having a community. You know, a lot of coaches want to have a community where they can grow their network, share ideas within a community network, find people that they can connect with that are similar or will challenge their beliefs and find different ways to, to share information and connect with people. So the, the app that we're currently developing at the minute is going to have really clever, intelligent technology where it's going to recognize your behavior and what you like. And it will tell you, you know, like you're watching this course, Paul, you might be interested in this and it'll, it'll base it around your individual preferences, but then equally you'll be able to develop your own community and grow your network, which is a huge part of coaching. You know, coaching is all about your network and your profile. Well, that um, interesting that you mentioned that because that uh, with online learning and online platforms, that can be something that, that can be neglected or missed that ability to communicate or connect with, with fellow coaches that I found that from my own experience with coach education, that's been a huge part of the course. It's been as sometimes it's been as, as valuable as the information I've learned on the course was connecting with those people. You probably, like you said, you wouldn't have got those opportunities in North America and Africa and, and, you know, the, I'm sure Europe and, and such forth without uh, those connections that you've made throughout these, educational and coaching uh, journeys you've taken. So if somebody wanted to learn more about, about this, where would they, could you give us the information of, of, of how they could learn more? 
So go to youlearnbly.com, www.u, as in the letter U, learn, L-E-A-R-N, B-L-Y.com. Uh, equally, you can follow us on Twitter at youlearnbly or myself, where it's Gerard, G-E-R-A-R-D underscore Jones. Uh, so that's at Gerard underscore Jones on Twitter. And they can get loads of information and, and find out more about our courses, uh, some of the offers that we've got on and, and so forth. Well, I'll also share that information in the in the notes of the podcast. Gerard, I, I want to thank you for your time. I'm learning a little bit more about you and your identity and what you're looking and your new platform. I wish you all the best for 2022. No, top man. Thanks for having me. I mean, it's, it's great to just talk, talk soccer and share experiences. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the PK Soccer Podcast. Don't forget that you can follow me on Twitter at Paul Kelshaw, Instagram at Paul Kelshaw, like my Facebook page at PK Soccer Inc. or send an email paulkelshaw at pksoccer.org. I would also be grateful if you could give the podcast a review and a rating and share with your fellow coaches and friends. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.